Where were you last week, Pastor Scott? Well, my good friend Lydia Banana, for my birthday, gave me tickets to the final Panthers game of the season. And we just felt that if any team needed a couple of clergy present, it was Carolina. We didn't help, did we, buddy? No, their, their season ended in as majestic a fashion as it began. And so, incidentally, did you hear about the guy? I think he was here in Alamance County. This was, I don't know, a month or two ago. He had Panther season tickets. And he pulled up to a, a gas station, left them on the dash of his car. And he got out and he went in. And do you know he came back and there were four more. It was <laughs> shocking. It's been one of those seasons, hasn't it? Well, we press on, and we're pressing on right now in the book of Genesis. We finished the first section of Genesis before Christmas. We called that Beginnings. This truly is a book of beginnings. We saw the beginning of creation. We saw the beginning of, of man, the greatest creation of all. We saw the beginning of his downfall into sin and a long road of temptation that would follow. We saw the beginning of true religion with a concept introduced by God himself, uh, the remission of sin through the shedding of blood and sacrifice. We saw the beginning of several institutions, uh, the institution of marriage, of family, of human government as God made a covenant with Noah. We saw uh, the, the establishment of the various nations as we studied Genesis 10. We saw the different people groups uh, that would go around the world descended through the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and those lines that even persist today. And now we're starting section 2 of Genesis, and we call this series The Chronicles of Abraham. And we're going to look at this singular uh, person that God handpicks. He selects him. And out of Abraham there will come a nation that God will set apart for himself. We're going to see this epic saga initiate right here. Uh, we're not going to talk a lot about Abraham today, but rather we are going to set the stage and we're going to describe an event in Genesis 11 that you might know about. Maybe you recall this from Sunday school or, or some uh, study that you've made in the past. This is the story of the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel. And when pastors get to this story in the Bible, there is a little bit of an inward cringe that goes on. Not because they don't believe this story. They most likely do. They, they consider it to be absolute truth. They may understand that the Tower of Babel account will result in the dispersion of mankind, in the confusion of man, and the, uh, the origin of various languages of peoples around the world. But they may have some trouble connecting it to the rest of Scripture. And this is a struggle that all of us face when we approach the Bible. We have to learn how is it that we correlate these stories to one another. Because the Bible is not a collection of random stories that just stand on their own. There is a connection that happens. This, this book is a unified book. And i got to tell you, I've really come to appreciate this story of the Tower of Babel. In fact, I would go so far as to say that if you don't understand the story of Babel, you're going to have a tough time wrapping your head around the state of the world as it exists right now. Because this story is going to show us mankind seeking to unite. Unite. Now that, 
That sounds like the ideal. This is what we want. We want to come together. Uh, we hear it sung about, and we hear it uh, 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 spoken about, and we see it depicted in movies that the world should be as one. Ah, the brotherhood of man. Let's all get together. Let's all join hands. One problem. Every time that is attempted in human history, bad, bad things happen. And this is the first time that that happens in the post-flood world. There is a uniting of man. And if you look at the end of the Bible, as we will later today, it's going to be attempted again. But the overarching thought here in your notes is that the Tower of Babel is the tragic story of what happens when the world unites on its own. On its own. See, that's when it's a problem. There is one and only one that can truly unite and that is Jesus Christ. But the world on its own will reap something awful because this story shows us the inception, the, the motivation, and the tragedy of globalism. Globalism, that's a word you might hear uh, bandied about today. There are globalists in our world and they believe that, that all of humanity should come under one system. And so that is what is attempted here in chapter 11. Now, to understand these events, you've got to go back a chapter. Because today we're going to look at what happens at Babel. We're going to look at why it happens. We're going to look at how it happens. We'll touch on where this takes place. We're going to see the end result of it all. But to start off, I want you to look at who. Who is behind this? Who is the central figure in this little story right here? And you're going to have to go back a chapter. You're going to have to go to chapter 10. Now, we've already studied chapter 10. We looked at that genealogy uh, coming out of Noah through his three sons. And we see all the various people groups. But you need to understand that what chapter 10 shows us is the state of the world after Babel. It gives us a peek ahead. All those people groups come into being following the event that we're going to study here today. And at, at the genesis of this event, we're going to see an individual. Who is behind the account of the Tower of Babel? There is going to emerge a religious heresy, a pagan religion, a one-world uh, system of false worship, and it doesn't just happen by itself. It starts with a specific person for a specific purpose. Look at Genesis 10, verse 8 with me. It says that Cush fathered Nimrod. How many of you have ever been called a Nimrod before? All right, well, there was a real guy named Nimrod. And what was intended when you were called Nimrod, maybe as a child, uh, has nothing to do with him. Because it goes on to say that he was the first on earth to be a mighty man. A mighty man. And you're going to see that word mighty three times in two verses here. And that speaks, more, uh, speaks to more than just his power. To say that he was mighty implies he was, he was haughty. He was arrogant. He was not humble. He was not spiritual. He was an overly confident, macho, swaggering dude. Nimrod. Verse 9, he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. It's a phrase that he defines. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Babel. Also, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. And so this Nimrod founded not only a city, but an entire metroplex of cities that would expand outwardly because he's not just the establisher of cities, he's a conqueror. 
It says in verse 11, from that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ir, Kala, and Resen between Nineveh and Kala, that is the great city. And so here is this massive city-state that starts at a place called Babel, or that would become a place called Babel, and it's a kingdom. And it's a kingdom that later Scripture is going to recognize another empire emerging from it. And you may be familiar with an empire called Babylon. Babylon would emerge from this spot right here. And so the who at the center of this story is this man, Nimrod, who in your notes is a man rooted in rebellion. Rooted in rebellion. In fact, his name, Nimrod, means rebellion. Now, who would name their kid Rebellion? Some of you may have thought that'd be a good name for your kid after their birth. Well, this guy's daddy named him intentionally Rebellion. How come? Well, we know that he's descended from Ham. So Nimrod's father is Cush. Cush is the son of Ham. Ham was the son of Noah. And so we studied what Ham did. Ham made a mockery of his father Noah. He mocked his faithfulness. And so he offended, he offended God. And God, therefore, put a curse on one of Ham's sons. Ham had a son named Canaan. And so God cursed Canaan. And all of Canaan's line would be slave uh, to the offspring of Ham's other brothers, Shem and Japheth. Now, God did not curse all of Ham's line. He did not curse Ham. He cursed Canaan. But you know how it is when we start to take offense for one another. And in a family, bitterness and, and uh, uh, anger can fester over time. And that certainly happened in the family of, of Ham. And so this descendant, Cush, has developed a chip on his shoulder. And he says to his son, you know, it's said of our kin, son, that they will be slaves, not you. You are not going to be a slave. No, you are going to be a rebel. You're going to be a conqueror. You're going to rise up. And he names him Nimrod, which means rebellion. And so he trains his son to rebel against God. And he's called here in verse 4, a mighty hunter before the Lord. That's not a compliment. Okay, this is not speaking to, to uh, Nimrod's prowess during deer season. This is saying that he's a hunter but he's not a hunter of animals, he's a hunter of men. The Jews have a, a translation, actually it's an Aramaic translation of the Old Testament Scripture, and it's called the, the Targum. And there's a Targum in Jerusalem that reads this way. It says that Nimrod was powerful in hunting and wickedness before the Lord, and he was a hunter of the sons of men. And so the Jews regarded Nimrod as a, as a cold-blooded murderer. He was a tyrant. He was a conqueror. He builds an empire upon the blood of those that he has slain. And we see that he moves into Assyria. To what? To kill and to conquer. He's going to shed blood. Now, God said something in Genesis 3 that we studied in the last section. After the flood, remember what led up to the flood. It's worldwide violence. It's corruption. And God destroys the earth. And he then tells Noah, via covenant, he says, whoever sheds the blood of man... By man shall his blood be shed. And so that is, that is to be a deterrent. You've got capital punishment instituted right there in Genesis chapter 9. Nimrod knows this, and yet he thumbs his nose at God anyway. And he says, I'm going I'm to kill whoever I need to kill. I'm going to shed whatever blood I need to shed to build my kingdom. And he's a mighty hunter before the Lord. And literally what that means is he's a mighty hunter in the face of God. He's in your face, God. He is a legend in his own mind, and he builds a kingdom. Now, what does he call this kingdom? We don't really know. 
Later it's going to be called Babel, but it will be God that gives it that name. But this word Babel, whatever it means originally, later there's going to come a kingdom out of that spot called Babylon, and they're going to revere Nimrod, and they're going to impose a meaning, their own meaning in their language of Akkadian. They're going to say that Babel means the gateway to God. They're going to say this is how you obtain, how you access the divine. And that is likely in keeping with how Nimrod saw this place, this kingdom. And so he, he has rejected the way of God. He has rejected what his ancestor Noah taught about how to access God, what his ancestor Seth and Abel and Adam all taught about how to access God. What was the original access to God after the fall? It was through sacrifice. God said, this is how you approach me. You come through the shedding of blood and have remission for sin. And here is Nimrod, and he says, not so. That is not my gateway to God. I will build my own gateway to God, to the divine. And so he rebels. And that's who we're dealing with at the center of it all. That's the who. Now let's look at the what. What is it that he does? Now you're into chapter 11 here in verse 1. It says, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. So people migrated from where that ark had come to rest in the mountains of, of Turkey, Ararat, and they move east. And they come to this place uh, called the land of Shinar. Now, how long after the flood is this? Well, you can actually figure that out. If you go back to chapter 10, you're going to see that genealogy, and you see all of these names, and there's a name there, the name of a guy named Peleg. And it says why he's named Peleg. Peleg means division. And so he's named division because in his day, when he was born, that's when all of the nations were confused in their languages. They were all divided according to language. So he's named Peleg. And so that is the time of the Tower of Babel. So if you want to know how long after the flood, you just do a little math. You go back to Noah and you, you count up the years until you get to Peleg. It's about 130 years. And so just think about that. God judges the earth because of the rebellion and sin of man. He judges it through flood. And he starts all over with eight people. And a mere 130 years later, man unites to rebel against God again. And God has to judge him. It takes less than two centuries. America had better pay attention to that timeline. And so there's a rebellion. And here's the form that rebellion takes in your notes. It's going to be an obsession with human accomplishment. Human accomplishment. You're going to see in the next few verse, two verses here, there's a couple of pleas made. The word come is used. In verse 3, they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. They're going to make bricks. They're going to make bricks out of the clay that's there, and they've got this mortar that comes up from the ground, and that's exactly what you'd have in the plain of Shinar. If you go there today, this is what you'll find. You're going to find red clay, and you're going to find bitumen or, or asphalt. It's going to be coming up from the ground. There are no uh, stones in that territory with which to build, so they've got to make bricks. Incidentally, where is this place? It's, it's a, a plain between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. And if you've been with us since our beginning in the study of Genesis, what else was placed right in that very spot? That is where God planted the Garden of Eden. 
is right there. And how ironic that in the very place where man originally rebelled and was dismissed from the garden, once again man is going to claw his way back to that same spot he was banned from and he's going to rebel against God again and God will judge him and cast him out. Same spot right there. It's a big, broad plain. No stones are there at this point. It's hardly even Eden at this point. But there's a lot of red clay. It's like Carolina. And they're going to make some bricks. And they're going to use this asphalt from the ground. And that is what you'd find even today in this spot. And so this, this is all very subtle. Let's, let's make some bricks. Come. It's always a good idea to have some bricks. You need bricks to build stuff. And it says that they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And so what you learn is you're not just putting bricks together to make a building. You're, you're building a city. And it's not just a city. It's a kingdom. It's got a tower in it. And this is no normal tower. This tower is going to reach into the heavens to replace God. And that's how Nimrod thinks of this city and this tower and this kingdom. It's the new gateway to God. Now, is there anything wrong with building stuff? No. No, there's nothing wrong with human accomplishment. There's nothing wrong with human ingenuity. It's about your motivation. It's the why. And here is the why. Here's their motivation in your notes. It's to replace God's way with man's way. They're trying to replace God's way. Nimrod wants to replace God. If you'll notice the verse we just read, there's a word that jumps out. It's the word ourselves. Ourselves. Let us build a city for ourselves. Let us make a name for ourselves. Now, God had a purpose for Noah and his sons after the flood. He said, fill the earth with my name. Fill the earth with my glory. Nimrod has no interest in that whatsoever. He wants to make a name for himself and for mankind. And this is the problem. And I want you to understand that they are doing this in total rebellion. They are fully aware of what God's purpose for man is. In fact, the people who survived the flood, that would be Noah and his three sons and their family, they are alive at this point. They are on the earth. They saw the pre-flood world. They could tell stories about the violence and the Nephilim and all of the things that displeased God, they could tell stories about the ark. They could tell stories about the vast destruction on the earth and what God did to it because he's a holy God. When they land on Ararat, they don't have any children. And then they start to have children. Those children start out. They don't have playmates. And these fathers can tell their kids, you know why you don't have any playmates? Because God killed them all. He's a holy God. You know why? Because man is inherently sinful and displeased God. And this is, we are a special people. We are to live according to God's promise and according to God's precept. You see why Grandpa Noah's over there sacrificing? That's because the way you approach God is through the shedding of the sacrifice, the, the shed blood for the remission of sin. They, they are able generationally to pass down truth. And those individuals are still alive at this moment. Noah will die two years before Abraham is born. Shem will not die until well into uh, the life of Isaac, Abraham's son. And so this testimony is present on the earth, but they are willfully in rebellion of it as a people. They say, let us do these things 
lest we be dispersed. Which tells you they know what God's command is. Scatter, fill the earth. They say, no, we're going to stay right here. Lest we end up doing what you want us to do, God. And so they reject God's will and they seek to replace it with their own will. How do they do that? Here's the how. If you're going to reject God's way, God's purpose, and promote your own, what do you have to eradicate? You've got to get rid of God. You've got to get rid of God's ways. That's the nature of man. Man will always try to replace God's uh, paradigm with his own. We will concoct for ourselves a religion that suits our sensibilities and our morality. That's what we have always done. So to get rid of God, you've got you to create your own gateway to the divine. And so these people pursue a city and a name and a tower. Now, your Bible, how many of you, it says of that tower that it's a tower whose top reaches into heaven. You got that phrase, reaches into heaven? Have you got that? All right, what I want you to know is that phrase, reaches into, is not in the original manuscript. Those words are non-existent. The way it ought to read is, it's a tower whose top is in heaven. Or whose top is with the heavens. When I was in Sunday school as a kid, and we'd be presented with this story, what I perceived it to be was these people were building a tower, and it just goes up, 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 and it's going to be so tall that they're going to build a tower all the way to heaven, to the dwelling place of God. How many of you had that primitive, childlike understanding of the Tower of Babel story? Now, is that possible? Can you build a tower to heaven? If you just build it tall enough, are you going to get to heaven? No, heaven is not a physical place. It's a spiritual place. And so it's impossible to do this. So that is not what they were threatening to do. So that phrase, its top is with the heavens or in the heavens, what I believe that refers to is archaeologists have discovered on the plain of Shinar and in the surrounding regions like Mesopotamia and such, there are structures, ruins of structures called ziggurats. And a ziggurat is sort of a tiered pyramid. And they would build these, and the civilizations that built them were obsessed with the stars, the heavens. And at the top of that, at the pinnacle of that ziggurat, there would be a symbol or a structure representing some heavenly body, the sun, the moon, constellations, stars. And so you would ascend this structural zodiac and reach the top in order that you may worship that heavenly body. And that is, that is the origin of astrology, you see. And so I believe that that is what this is referring to, that the very pinnacle of that tower would be man's gateway to man's God and replace the true God with man's created God. And so here, the how, how are we going to replace God in your notes? It's going to be the institution of false religion. The institution of false religion. Astrology is where it all began. The study of the zodiac. Any book on astrology that you read will tell you it started with Babylon. Babylon was the first culture to divide the sky into sections and then assign meaning based on the stars in those sections of the sky. And this is something that is beginning here at Babel. It's going to continue on. You're going to see it in later pagan cultures after Babylon rises. You're going to see it in Greece. You're going to see it in Rome. All of their gods are basically planets or stars. They worship Jupiter or, or Mars, etc., and so this tower is the first attempt at pagan religion. It's basically pantheism. You take the creation, you worship it as God. 
That's what Romans 1 talks about. They worship creation rather than creator. And so you see this in Egypt. Egypt has the pyramids. And their pyramids were built in direct line with the North Star. And they worshiped the heavens. And the first heavenly body in the zodiac, in the celestial zodiac, according to the Egyptians, was that constellation that represents the Virgin, which the Greeks would later call Virgo. The last uh, uh, object in the zodiac would be the constellation of the Lion, which is later going to be called Leo. So you got the first, the Virgin, the last is the Lion. Is there an Egyptian structure or symbol with the face of a woman and the body of a lion? You see them all over ancient Egypt, and there's a rather famous one in front of the Great Pyramid. And so there you've got this, this sphinx, which comes from a Greek word, which means to join. And so they have joined the first of the zodiac with the last of the zodiac. First and last joined together there on the banks of the Nile. But folks, we know the real first and last, don't we? We know the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and his name is Jesus Christ. But paganism traces its roots to Babel. And the heavens have always been the object of man's idolatry. He worships the sun, the moon. All false religion can, can be traced back to this. Even Islam. Even Islam is, in its origin, a pagan religion. You say, wait, 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 hold on. That's a monotheistic religion, Pastor Scott. They worship one God, not many. Paganism is many gods. Islam is monotheistic. It's like, it's like Judaism. In fact, a lot of people say that, that Allah and Jehovah are the same God. We just part ways, you know, at, 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 in different parts of the Bible. But it's the, same, it's the same God. Not so. Not so. The pinnacle of the pagan pantheon in Mesopotamia was a moon god named Suen. And they later shortened the name of that moon god to Sin. I kid you not, they worship sin. That's right. The moon god. And the moon god was over an entire pantheon of other gods. Hundreds, hundreds of gods. And sin's title, this moon god, his title among the Arabs was at one point Al-Ilah. And there was a man raised in a moon god worship culture by the name of Muhammad. And Muhammad took it a step further. He said, the greatest God is sin, therefore I will worship only sin. And he banned worship of all the other gods, focused on sin, but referred to him by his title, Al-Ilah, which he shortened to Allah. Allah. And so Islam has at its origin pagan worship, the worship of celestial bodies of the moon god. And in fact, today the symbol of Islam is indeed a crescent moon. And so you can trace all false religion to this pagan culture right here. And so all of these cultures eventually are going to go out. And they're going to take this pagan ideology with them. When God disperses them, they're going to carry it with them. And so you see this in all of these different regions of Mesopotamia and in, uh, in Greece and in uh, ancient Rome. And all of these things, you're going to see pagan worship. And people are going to say, well, Christianity is derived from pagan myth because there are some myths that persist and they say that we get some of our ideas from that. But I want you to understand, Christianity is the oldest religion in the world. It's the oldest religion. If you go back as we have studied in Genesis 3, what is it that God says to the serpent after the fall? Because you have done this, I will put enmity between your seed and the seed of the woman. 
and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And that, my friends, is the gospel given in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3. That there would come from the woman one day a seed, someone who would overcome a mortal wound and deal a death blow to our eternal enemy. And that is the truth of the gospel and Christianity. And we see it in the Garden of Eden and it culminates at Calvary and everything in between is just a warped corruption and deviation. And it's the error of paganism and it begins right here in Babel. It's the, it's the inception of pagan thought. And you've got this guy Nimrod who is seeking to dupe and mislead the world into following this one world religion. You say, are you sure? How can you believe this, Pastor Scott? I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I believe the Bible and I, I believe the Old Testament. But this, this story right here, I mean, this isn't even referenced in, in the New Testament. Oh, yes, it is. Oh, yes, it is. Let me show you something. I want to take a little deviation right now. I want, I want you to go to the last book of the Bible. We're in the first book of the Bible. Let's go to the last book of the Bible. Go to Genesis 17. Excuse me, Revelation 17 with me right now. In Revelation 17, we're talking about the last days. This is the end times. Okay? Last days of planet Earth. Where's the church at this point? We've been raptured. Jesus has come back, taken his bride out. And governing the earth is a one world power. And so the spirit of Genesis 11 is going to make a comeback in the last days of planet Earth. A one world government. And just like Babel had a singular leader at the center, Nimrod... That one world government is going to have a human leader at the center. What are we going to call him? The Antichrist. The Antichrist. And he will be the object of a one world religion. And what will that one world religion of the last days be called? It's going to be called Babylon the Great. Babylon the Great. Look at verse 1 of Revelation 17. John says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. Who is this great prostitute? Well, that is what they call the religious system of the last days. It's pictured as, as infidelity to a holy God. And this prostitute, this, this false religion, sits on many waters. What does that symbolize? Drop down to verse 15. It says, The angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. False religion sits upon the Gentile world. That's what nations always refers to in the scriptures. People groups, Gentile people groups. And so this great prostitute of false religion, it's in every people group around the world. In India, it's called Hinduism. In uh, Pakistan, it's called Islam. In America and in other parts of the West, it's called atheism. It's called Darwinism. Sadly, in our own land today, uh, it's rising as socialism, as Marxism. In Red China and in North Korea, it's called communism. In uh, uh, all over Asia, in, in, in uh, uh, places in the East, it's called Buddhism. It's called Shintoism. And they've all got one thing in common, rebellion against a holy God. They are darkened, and apart from Jesus Christ, they are all going to hell. You say, well, that's awfully arrogant of you to say, Pastor Scott. I mean, come on. Who are you to assume that you have the only way? You know the only way. While there are millions of good people all over this world, sincere people, 
You're telling me they're all going to go to hell? How would Christ respond to that? He would say simply, as he has said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's as simple as that. No one comes to the Father except through me. But they're so sincere. If that mattered, then why did Jesus give us the Great Commission? Why would he say to you and I as followers, go therefore and make disciples of all peoples, all nations. Make disciples. He's not going to judge them on the light that they have. They have no light. They are utterly in darkness. They're deceived by this harlot. And it says in verse 2 of Revelation 17, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. The kings of the earth have signed on with this great prostitute. Who is that talking about, the kings of the earth? That's all the governments of the earth. In those days, they will be aligned with idolatry, with paganism, with this false world system. Governments today are doing the same thing, even if they haven't embraced an organized religion. They adopt the worldviews that are very anti-Christian. And we see this religion being unified in the last days. In verse 3 it says, And he carried me away in the Spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and ten horns. Now don't panic. I'm going to explain what this is symbolizing here. You got this prostitute. That is the final world religion, you see. She is seated on a beast. God sees the kingdoms of man as a beast, a primitive, savage beast. So think about it. God's view. God's view of, of this, this beautiful, pristine, uh, alluring religious system. He sees it as a harlot, as a whore. And he sees the kingdoms of man, powerful and austere, as none other than a bloodthirsty beast savage beast. And it says in verse 4, the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. She's a real looker on the outside. Beautiful, alluring, enticing. False religion is alluring. It offers things to us. It offers enlightenment. It offers higher consciousness and benevolence, sometimes affluence. Uh, it offers prosperity. Even when it's disguised as something good, it can offer prosperity. There are brands of so-called Christianity that will offer prosperity to any and all. There are churches that look the part. There are churches, they've got all the usual symbols. They might have a cross on the wall. They might be very conservative. They might sing all the songs that we sing. Maybe they've got traditional pews, as some churches do. Maybe they, they have a choir that wears robes. Maybe they have a pastor that wears robes. That'll be the day. <laughs> they look the part, but what comes off of that platform is antithetical to God's Word. They will perhaps deny the virgin birth. They will perhaps deny the atonement. They may deny that hell is a literal place. They may deny that God is a just God who will enact his judgment on those who are separate from him. And this is how the enemy likes to work. He deceives with that which is alluring, enticing. 
And it's got a label, but it's not the real thing. And it says of this prostitute that she's holding in her hand a golden cup filled with abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. Note the contrast between Christ and this harlot right here. He offers living water. He offers the wine of full pardon. This prostitute offers abominations, impurities. And we drink of that when we accept and embrace and believe everything that the world has to offer. And we, we, even though it's not an organized one world religion as such today, this spirit is still around. There's ideologies that we encounter at every turn and the world tries to force it on us and make us adapt to it. But it's a bitter cup and it will kill you. And in verse 5 it says, And on her forehead was written a name of mystery. Now we find out her name. And she's a mystery because she looks one way on the outside, but on the inside we, we see revealed her name. And it's this, Babylon the Great. Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. She's the mother of prostitutes because it was at that site of Babylon and of the Tower of Babel that all false religions had their mother. And she's given birth. And once they are dispersed, they go out and they carry all of this paganism with them. And you need to know something. This false system that dominates our world, it not only hates God, it hates you. And it says in verse 6, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. This system is, is in direct opposition not only to God, but to all of Christ's followers. Maybe you've encountered people and, and you think you have some commonality. You, you share some religious views or something like that. You're not sure if you can trust them doctrinally. Let me, let me give you some advice. Don't engage them in debate. Don't, don't start a fight with them. Just ask them some questions. Ask them what they think of the atonement. Hey, do, you, do, you, do you believe that Jesus died for our sin? And if they are false, they will squirm. They will get uncomfortable. And they will begin to see you as a nut and as a freak. The saints of God are on the enemies list of this harlot. And John says in 6, he says, When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. This beast that she sits on has seven heads. What are those? Those are the seven world kingdoms that have existed throughout human history. There have been seven. The Bible only recognizes seven. I can list them. They are as follows. Egypt. Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome. That's six. That's the first six. Some of you may be thinking, well, what about the Mongol Empire? Well, the Bible recognizes a world empire as an empire that has dominion over Israel. And all of those empires have dominion over Israel, over the Jews. And we see the last, the sixth one is Rome. Has there been one since then? There has not been a global empire since then. Is there coming a seventh global empire? Yes, according to Revelation, according to the book of Daniel. And just as Nimrod was at the center of that empire in Babel, there will be a man at the center of the coming empire. It's going to be the empire of the Antichrist, the final world government. And so what could be said of this concept of globalism, of world empire, is that it was... It is now not, but it will be. There were world empires. There currently is not, but one day there will be again. Now watch this in verse 8. The beast that you saw, says the angel to John, the beast that you saw was and is not 
and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. And this is an amazing thing to be written by the likes of John because as John is writing this in 90 AD, the Roman Empire is still in place. It's still in place. And so this is an astounding thing to write. And so this future beast has seven heads, and they represent something. And I want you to read uh, verse 9. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings. And so we've got those seven kingdoms represented here that I listed here. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome. Now, knowing what you know as a 21st century person with access to the annals of history and to the Bible, how do you interpret what comes next? It goes on to say, five of whom have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. Those seven kingdoms, the angel tells John, five of whom have fallen, one now is, and one is yet to come. So when John is writing this, Rome is still standing. And so from John's perspective, the angel acknowledges, five world empires have come and gone. Rome is here now, John, in your day. And one day there's coming a final kingdom. All right, so that ought to tell you this story of the Tower of Babel as the inception of this world system. This is an important story. We see it in the final book of the Bible. And with that perspective, we now return to the first book of the Bible, to Genesis 11. And we're going to now look at the result of this whole ordeal. Back in Genesis 11, verse 5, they're building this tower. They are probably ecstatic about their own ingenuity, their own accomplishment. And what happens in verse 5? It says, and the Lord came down. Here comes God. He comes down. Have you ever walked through uh, like Manhattan or some major metropolitan city and you stare up at those skyscrapers and you're just in awe of, of what man has built? But have you ever flown over them in a jet plane? It looks a little different at 30,000 feet, doesn't it? It's not quite as impressive as it is at the ground level. You're getting somewhat of a God's eye view there. God's not impressed with what man has done. This tower is just a pimple to God. And so we see he comes down. He says, and the Lord comes down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. The children of man. Let's go see what the kids are doing, he says. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Now, this is not God marveling at the amazing potential of man. This is not God cowering in fear over what man might do. i got to stop man or else he might actually pull this off and be greater than me. That's not what he's saying. He's saying uh, nothing will be impossible in terms of their morality. See, man is corrupt. Man's heart is darkened. He is inherently evil because of the fall. And God has already said in Genesis 9 that he's promised never to destroy the earth by flood again. And God is not going to take the creation that was made in his image and remove their free will. Okay? So he's speaking to their potential as a unified lot of corrupt individuals. They have unlimited potential to do evil. 
This is not about what we can pull off uh, for the good of mankind. This is about our, our ability to do immeasurable acts of wickedness. The same hands that painted the Mona Lisa, that painted the Sistine Chapel, those very hands can construct the gas chambers and the ovens of Auschwitz. Man is, is unlimited in his capacity to do evil, and so God is going to do something here. In verse 7, he says, Come, let us. Just like Nimrod said, Come, let us build a city. Let us make a name for ourselves. Man says, Come, let us. God says, No. Come, let us. Come, let the Godhead. Come, let the Trinity. Let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. This is a judgment. He's going to confuse them. Every era, every age of man has a command of God, a subsequent disobedience by man, and then a final judgment by God. In, in, in the early time of innocence, God said, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Man did. He said, you are dismissed from the garden. In the days leading up to the flood, he said, I, I, I want you to govern yourself according to the knowledge that I have given you. Man disobeyed that. He shed man's blood. There was wickedness. There was worldwide global corruption. So God judged him. He said, I'm going to destroy the earth except for eight people. So there was dismissal. There was destruction. Now there's going to be a dispersion. And it's going to be caused by a confusion of man's languages. And by the way, this is a judgment, but it's also an act of mercy. It's an act of mercy. He doesn't want there to be no end to their wickedness. And so he's going to confuse them that he might separate them. And in verse 8, it says, So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Uh, you got to separate the wrongdoers. How many of you had a rambunctious group of kids in your midst? What did you do? You have to separate them. Some of them are no good together. Johnny, go sit over there. Virgil, get over there. And so he's going to disperse them, and he does this by confusing their languages. You saw in verse 1, all the earth spoke one language. They, they had all the same word. Incidentally, what was the first language of planet earth? I submit to you that it is the language that we call Hebrew. Because all of the names from Genesis 1 on are Hebrew names. And so I believe, personally, that that was the original language. I think everybody spoke the same language. Not anymore. In the blink of an eye, God changes it all. I want you to imagine the cacophony of noise and of sound as this incredible structure is being built. Man is a well-oiled machine. They all speak the same language. They communicate seamlessly, flawlessly in the same tongue. And then, boom, it's suddenly an unintelligible mess of different dialects and sounds and speech. And maybe if you were there, you might not perceive that you're speaking any differently than you always have. You may think you're the normal one. But this guy that you're talking to, I can't make heads or tails of what he's saying. I don't understand him in the least. He's like Joe Biden after a trip to the dentist. In, in a heartbeat. Here's one guy with the two-by-four. Say, hey, buddy, hand me those nails over there. Como se dice? And there's, there's no way to understand one another. And so what subsequently happens is they just, they just give up. They just give up, and that's man. We go find our own tribe. We go find our own people. Whoever gets me, that's who I'm going to hang with. And so they leave their work, 
And they go off. And suddenly God is accomplishing what he had commanded them to do, to scatter. Fill the earth. They say no. He says, you don't want to scatter? (laughs) I'll scatter you. I will confuse you and scatter you. And they go. Now the downside is, as they go, they take their paganism with them. And so as, as they go into Egypt, the Egyptians have their harlot. And as they go into Mesopotamia, the Mesopotamians have their harlot. And the Greeks have their harlot. And all of these people, the Hittites and, and the Macedonians and the Amalekites and all that, they, they take their idolatry with them. But it starts with utter widespread confusion. And in verse 9, now we find the name of this place. It's, it's a formally given, this name. It says, therefore, its name was called Babel. Now I told you what the later kingdom that emerged there, the Babylonians, I told you what they considered that to mean. In their own tongue, in Akkadian, they held that Babel meant the gateway to God. Bab means gate. El means God in Akkadian. Doesn't mean that in Hebrew. Babel in Hebrew, Babel, means confusion. It means confusion. Because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. They said, let us make a name for ourselves. God says, you want a name? I'll give you a name. Confusion. Confusion. And by the way, this is where we get our term, Babel. Someone speaking gibberish, you know, if, you're, if your little baby is just jabbering away nonsensically, we say they're, they're babbling. And this is where that comes from. It comes from a place called Babel. And in your notes, rejection of God always ends in confusion. It always ends. Man thinks if I can get out of, of, from under God's authority, that, that means I now have authority. Ah, you've got confusion. Is our world confused? Are we confused about a number of things? Absolutely. I watched a documentary. It was a true crime thing. Uh, this guy committed a murder. It was, it was premeditated. Uh, he, he, he covered it up. He hid the body. He did all of these things. He lied to the police. They proved beyond a shadow of a doubt he was guilty. He went before the judge. He was convicted. He was sentenced to death in a state that didn't even have the death penalty, but because he crossed state lines, it was a federal case, so he was given the death penalty. And he sits on death row for 20 years. That makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Gave him enough time for the judge to lose his mind and change his sentence. He overturned his sentence, gave him life. And I look at that and I think, how do you, how do you even make sense of that? Like, how do you even explain that? It, it can be explained in that we're confused. We are confused about justice. We're confused about morality. We're confused about marriage. We're confused about raising children. We're confused about governance. We're confused about sexuality. We're confused about gender. And we just end up babbling to ourselves. And we think we're brilliant. And it says, And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. And what we're going to see next week is that of all these various people groups that emerge from Babel, God's going to say, I'm not going to govern all of you as I once did. I'm going to take one man, a man named Abram. And from that man, I will grow a nation. And I will set them apart. And eventually that nation will not submit fully to God. And so God's going to have to... uh, 
expand his plan to include a new people that will be comprised of both Jew and Gentile. But despite of what we have just seen, that man will seek to unite and how that usually ends for bad, I want you to understand something. It was Jesus who prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. He prays for unity. The final prayer of Christ is, Father, that they might be one as you are in me and as I am in you, that they may also be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. Christ was praying in that garden before he was led to Calvary. He was praying for unity, that we might all be one. You see, when the world tries to become one on its own, it results in something bad. But when Jesus brings us together, and by the way, that prayer that Christ prayed 50 mere days later, God answered on a day called Pentecost, when in Jerusalem to commemorate the feast that celebrates the giving of the law, you have Jews from all these countless nations that are in town to observe. They all speak different languages. They are separated by culture and tongue. The disciples are filled with the Spirit and they come out in power and miraculously they open their mouths and God speaks and the gospel comes forth. And it is wondrously understood in the native tongue of everyone present on that day. And many come, thousands come to receive Jesus Christ and he unites them in his spirit. Whereas at Babel, man united as one to reject the one way to create a new way and God gave them confusion on Pentecost. Man, divided, is brought together divinely by God who speaks the truth of the one way, Jesus Christ. And they receive by faith and they cut through the confusion and are united in spirit. Because in your notes, true unity and clarity are found only in Christ. That, that command that God gave the people prior to Babel was scatter and fill the earth. Scatter and fill the earth. Now he's created a new people. We're the church of Jesus Christ. And he's given us a command. And he tells us, scatter and fill my church. Fill my church. That's our command. Would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, I just ask your blessing upon everyone in this room. May they know that true unity is in you, God. And if you've brought them by faith, I pray that they would know they are connected to every other believer in the world. They are connected to Jesus Christ. They are heirs to the throne, Lord. And I pray that you would bless them as they go, that they would walk in that identity, that they would take seriously the command that you have upon us right now to go to make disciples of all ethnos, all peoples, that every tribe and tongue may confess that Jesus is Lord. And we pray this in that holy name. Amen. Amen.